0: There are two ways for the heart to break. Apart into many shards, like a fragment grenade or open into a greater capacity so that we can hold life's inevitable tensions creatively, not destructively. These words from educator and activist Parker Palmer point us towards a vision of what he calls the politics of the brokenhearted. Palmer continues. We hold tensions and we don't know how to hold them, and the heart explodes like a hand grenade. And we sometimes want to throw that hand grenade at a perceived enemy. But a new habit of the heart would allow us to take that brokenhearted experience in a new direction, not toward a shattering into a million pieces, but to a heart that grows larger, more capacious, more open to both the suffering and pain in the world, as well as the joy and hope. Within us is a yearning for something better than divisiveness, toxicity, passivity, powerlessness, and selling our democratic inheritance to the highest bidder. Within us is the courage And that yearning to hold life's tensions consciously, faithfully, and well until they break us open. On Friday, I know that many of you shared my experience of feeling your heart breaking open in grief. You're still feeling it. When you heard that a gunman had killed 26 people, 20 of them children. And we've since learned that most of them were only 6 and 7 years old. A shooting at an elementary school. It's a senseless slaughter that's the second deadliest shooting in U.S. history after the 2007 massacre at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, which claimed 32 lives. But this week's tragedy was even more wrenching for many people because in the words of President Obama, the majority of those who died were children. Just beautiful little kids. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays graduations, weddings, kids of their own. Among the fallen were also teachers, men and women who devoted their lives to helping those children fulfill their dreams. As I learned more about the story, I couldn't help thinking, what if the victim had been my niece or nephew, my cousin, my godchild? I know some of you similarly thought, what if the victim had been my child, my grandchild? And even as I felt my heart breaking open in grief, I could feel my heart breaking apart into shrapnel, into anger aimed at the shooter, at our culture of violence, at the NRA, at politicians who don't have the guts or integrity to stand up to gun lobbyists. And I began to see reflexive, entrenched debates begin to play out over social media and on TV about why either more guns or less guns are the response. Now, many of these debates suffer from misinformation, but polemical debates on Facebook are often far too similar to the debates that we see play out on the national stage. Only a few months ago, on October 16th, President Barack Obama and former Governor Mitt Romney took the stage for the second presidential debate. During that debate, Candy Crowley asked the following question of President Obama. She said, During the Democratic National Convention in 2008, you stated that you wanted to keep AK-47s out of the hands of criminals. What has your administration done or planned to do about the availability of assault weapons? President Obama began his response by saying, we're a nation that believes in the second amendment and I believe in the second amendment. We've got a long tradition of hunting and sportsmen and people who wanna make sure that they can protect themselves. But there have been too many instances during the course of my presidency when I've had to confront families who've lost something and try to comfort them, most recently out in Aurora. Now, the president continued at length, but the gist was his recommendation that we should double down on the status quo. We have to enforce the laws that we've already got. Although at one point he did admirably say that weapons that were designed for soldiers in war theaters do not belong on our streets. He also, importantly, emphasized that in my hometown of Chicago, there's an awful lot of violence that doesn't involve AK-47s. They're using cheap handguns. The president's right to point out that the mass shootings, such as in Aurora, Colorado or Newtown, Connecticut, are still the exception in the US and we do need to address all forms of gun violence. But I want to return to those first two sentences of his response. Keep in mind that the president is a former constitutional law professor at the University of Chicago. So I don't presume that I know more about the Constitution than he does. But he's doing this country a disservice when he seeks to score cheap political points by trafficking in constitutional canards. Listen again to his opening two sentences. We're a nation that believes in the Second Amendment, and I believe in the Second Amendment. We've got a long tradition of hunting and sportsmen and people who want to make sure they can protect themselves. Now, I'm from South Carolina. I have many people in my family who are hunters and sportsmen. I have a uh, 90-year-old aunt who carries a concealed gun in her purse. Uh, but, and I agree with the President that we have traditions of hunting and self-protection in this country. But the, self, the Second Amendment doesn't have anything to say for or against hunting or self-protection. As Gary Willis once quipped, to bear arms is itself a military term, and one does not bear arms against a rabbit. (laughs) The Second Amendment is about a well-regulated militia. It's not about hunting or self-defense. Those traditions are important, but they distract us from what should be the core constitutional question at hand. Now, President Obama is no doubt much more aware of the subtleties here than I am. But during that second presidential debate, he was understandably much more concerned about getting reelected than he was about exploring the int- intricacies of constitutional law. Well, now he is reelected. And just as that debate didn't seem like the right time to have an honest, above board, nuanced conversation about the Constitution, there also never seems to be the right time to have a national conversation on gun violence. And frankly, we need to move from conversation to legislation. Those of you who follow the Supreme Court likely remember the landmark case, District of Columbia versus Heller, which decided for the first time in our entire nation's history that the second amendment guarantees an individual's right to own a gun for self-defense. The court's landmark five to four decision split along ideological grounds and wiped away years of lower court decisions that had held that the intent of of that amendment, ratified more than 200 years ago, was tied to the right of gun possession to militia service. And note that this ideologically driven interpretation of the Second Amendment was made just a mere four years ago, in 2008, and likely would have been quite a surprise to our founders. As Justice John Paul Stevens wrote in a 46-page dissent, when each word in the text is given full effect, the amendment is most naturally read to secure the right of the people to use and possess arms in conjunction with service in a well-regulated militia. No more than that. And notice that that modifier, well-regulated, is in the text of the Second Amendment. To look briefly at the history of how we arrived at this current impasse in our country and so many almost unspeakable tragedies, it's important to note that in stark contrast to the National Rifle Association's current position, the NRA supported the 1934 National Firearms Act, the first major federal gun control legislation in 1934 and the 1938 Federal Firearms Act was supported by the NRA, which together created a licensing system for dealers and prohibitively taxed the private ownership of automatic weapons, then called machine guns. And in 1939, the United States Supreme Court unanimously upheld the constitutionality of the 1934 National Firearms Act in the case U.S. v. Miller. The shift really came in the 1970s. The NRA's motto changed from firearm safety, marksmanship training, and shooting for recreation to the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But this new motto is a manipulative proof text. It only quotes the second half of the Second Amendment, omitting the crucial first half that gives the rightful context, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Around this period, the NRA began advancing the right of citizens to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment, divorced from the historical context of a militia and scholars have shown that at least 16 of the 27 law review articles published between 1970 and 1989 that were favorable to the NRA's interpretation of the Second Amendment were written by lawyers that were directly employed or represented or represented the NRA or other gun rights organizations. In a 1991 interview, Former Chief Justice Warren Burger, which some of you will remember, was a 1969 Nixon appointee to the Supreme Court, said that the new interpretation of the Second Amendment is one of the greatest pieces of fraud, and he said this, he said, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I've ever seen in my lifetime. So I would argue that at least one important way forward is to press for a more sane interpretation of the Second Amendment that corrects the 2008 ruling in District of Columbia versus Heller, which is only five to four and could easily have gone the other way. It's important to remember that even the Supreme Court gets it wrong sometimes. Corporations are not people and the Second Amendment is not about hunting and handguns. And I'm not saying that we should ban all guns. Frankly, I personally would, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, But we need to move toward a middle ground of responsible gun legislation. They didn't ask me my personal opinion when writing the Constitution. Uh, In addition to the historical context, though, about the Second Amendment's grounding in a well-regulated militia, there's also important sociological data that should inform how we might move forward in regard to gun violence. First, although the U.S. continues to have a significantly higher overall rate of deaths due to assault compared to other countries, we also have a decades-long decrease within the U.S. So where we are now, we've had a decrease. Other countries are here, we're here. We've gone kind of like this, though. We've, We've remained way above the gun violence of every other developed country, but we've still gone in the past few decades way up and then way back down for us speaking only within the U.S. The annual rates of assault deaths peaked in our country around the late 1970s and are now down to early 1960s levels. As political scientist Patrick Egan notes, in the early 1980s, almost half of Americans told the General Social Survey uh, that they were afraid to walk alone at night, almost half, in their own neighborhoods. Now only one-third feel that way. Thus, despite the fact that five of the deadliest shootings in U.S. history have all happened since 2007, the overall decades-long decline in assault deaths help explain why there help give one possible explanation why there is not still broader support for gun control. Now, that being said, another important trend to keep in mind is that may make gun control legislation more viable in the long term is that despite high overall amount overall amounts of guns in our country, especially compared to other countries, ownership of firearms is at or near all-time lows in the United States. Since 1973, again, that general social survey that sociologists use, has been asking Americans whether they keep a gun in their homes. In the 1970s, about half of the nation said yes. Today, only about one-third of households in our country have a gun. As less Americans own guns, we may see a corresponding decline in the NRA's power and influence. Of course, not all the data is counterintuitive. Many pundits on Friday noted the parallel story to Newtown on the other side of the world. Knife attack in Chinese school wounds 22 children. Although tragic, there were no casualties in that attack. Those children still live, and their parents can still hug them at night. All 22 of those children might be dead if that assailant had access to a gun. So it is significant to note that studies do show that more guns tend to mean more homicides. And states with stricter gun control laws have fewer deaths from gun-related violence. But despite all these facts, a large part of the political impasse is that politicians know that gun control in general has been and continues to be politically unpopular. At least that's proved to be true. It's yet to see whether this most recent incident will change that. And whether we like it or not, if we're serious about changing our culture of violence, we need to take seriously that polls taken before and polls taking after of the same groups before Aurora, and after Aurora, before Tucson and after Tucson, before Virginia Tech and after Virginia Tech, they showed again and again that shootings do not tend to substantially affect people's views on gun control. They're essentially the same before and after the shooting. This lack of shift in public opinion is perhaps again because overall levels of violence in our country remain dramatically down compared to recent decades in U.S. history. Now, it may be partially, too, because we've maybe we've bought into this myth about the Second Amendment, so we feel like we just can't do anything. But keep in mind also that the Constitution was not created perfect. That's why we keep, uh, that's why we keep making amendments to it. Remember that the Constitution was written to say that uh, an African-American person is three-fifths of a human being. So it was not a perfect document then or now. So all that being said, here's a crucial point that may indicate our, more, our most realistic way forward. Particular policies to gun control often are popular. Oftentimes gun control advocates have overreached going for a ban on all guns or, or they've gone too far instead of looking at what particular policies might be possible. A complete ban on guns is very unpopular with the American public. But background checks... Gun registrations, bans on guns for felons and the mentally ill are robustly supported, but we don't necessarily have legislation to match that support. A majority of the population also supports a ban on semi-automatic weapons and especially on high-capacity clips that allow mass killings to happen before anyone can intervene. So there is cause for hope. And speaking for myself, as well as many others that I've talked to in the past few days, the mass murder of so many children is heartbreaking for me on an even more wrenching level than even the many similar tragedies that we've seen in in recent years. But we as a nation seem to be addicted, and I use that word addicted very intentionally. We seem to be addicted to guns and addicted to violence. We don't think rationally about them. And even with the slaughter of innocents in Newtown... It's still far from clear whether we've hit bottom as a nation. And I use that word intentionally, too, about our addiction. I'm not sure that we've hit bottom. I'm not sure that if we've even now experienced sufficient pain to convince us that change must happen. One definition of insanity is to keep doing things the same way and expecting a different result. But I do have some hope that this latest case of gun violence could galvanize change in a way that wasn't possible before. Perhaps the tragic loss of so many defenseless children will break hearts open in compassion instead of merely breaking hearts apart. Social activist Jim Wallace often says that you can spot a politician walking around D.C. because they always have their fingers in the air. They have their fingers in the air because they've licked their finger and they're trying to see which way the wind is blowing so they'll know how they should vote. So he cautions, you don't change a society by merely replacing one politician who has a finger in the air with another politician who has, is just going to have a different finger in the air. You change a society by changing the wind. My hope is that the wind is beginning to change in the direction of gun regulation, sane, sensible gun regulation. There are gun rights and there are gun responsibilities. We can and must do better as a nation at balancing rights with responsibilities for ourselves and for our children. And the recent victories for immigration reform and marriage equality in the state of Maryland and around the country demonstrate that change is possible, change that people couldn't even imagine you know, even a few years ago, we can change the wind, but it takes hard work as those people who rang doorbells and made phone calls and contacted their representatives and handed out flyers in parking lots and had many difficult conversations with friends and family members can attest to that those victories for immigration and for marriage equality, they didn't just happen by chance. They took hard work. Now your position on gun control is, of course, ultimately up to the dictates of your conscience. But if you do feel led to get involved in making change, one place to begin to educate yourself about how to make a difference is the website of the Brady Campaign, bradycampaign.org. It's the namesake of James Brady who was permanently disabled and almost killed in the 81 armed assassination attempt of President Reagan. The Brady Campaign Since 1981, knows the ins and outs of gun control legislation and how hard it is to create change. That assailant had a history of mental illness and had bought the pistol used in the attack at a pawn shop. For decades now, as I said, the Brady Campaign has worked to introduce and encourage the enforcement of sane gun control legislation to prevent gun violence in our country. And in the wake of the recent movie theater shootings in Colorado, it launched a a subsidiary campaign called We Are Better Than This. Wearebetterthanthis.org, if you'd like to learn more, to foster a meaningful national conversation on how to prevent national tragedies like what happened in Aurora, Colorado. Today, the need for that conversation is just even more stark, and the Brady campaign has already laid some of the necessary groundwork. A vital part of the national conversation uh, also needs to be about a path toward easily accessible treatment for mental illness. At the same time, I think that the New York Times columnist, Nicholas Kristof, is right that the fundamental reason kids are dying in massacres like this one is not that we have lunatics or criminals. All countries have lunatics. All countries have criminals. We suffer in the U.S. from a political failure to regulate guns. Children ages 5 to 14 in America are 13 times more likely to be murdered with guns as children in other industrialized countries. More Americans die in gun homicides and suicides in six months than have died in the last 25 years in every terrorist attack and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. We have misplaced priorities in this country and that must change. But organizations such as the Brady campaign have been unable to create the political will on their own to make that change. It and organizations like it need our help if we're serious about change. And I encourage you to consider working through the Brady campaign or a similar organization to make a systemic change in our country regarding gun regulation. But even as we work to change our culture of violence, the individual level does matter too. So be sure in this season to take time to hug your loved ones. Phone them if you can't touch them in person. Savor each present moment that you're around those you care about. Be gentle with yourselves and take care of each other. As the sermon ends, I invite you to listen again to these words adapted from Parker Palmer about how With our hearts broken open, we might create a politics, an open, vulnerable, yet powerful politics of those whose hearts are broken. Within us is a yearning for something better than divisiveness, better than toxicity, better than passivity, powerlessness, and selling our democratic inheritance to the highest bidder. Within us is courage, courage to pursue that yearning to hold life's tensions consciously, faithfully, and well, until those tensions break us open. May we find a way to live together into a new habit of the heart that will allow us to take that brokenhearted experience in a new direction, not toward a shattering into a million pieces, but toward a heart that grows larger, more capacious, more open to both the world's suffering and pain, as well as the world's joy and hope. May our hearts be broken open. In the spirit, I'm going to invite us to stand together in a few moments to sing the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel means God with us. And however you do or don't understand the word God, This song, especially with the revised lyrics found in our UU hymnal, is about the hope that can happen with or without God when our hearts are broken open instead of apart. In that open, vulnerable space, unforeseen transformation can occur and can emerge. On this day and in all the days to come, may love, may truth, may light, And may hope come to dwell in our hearts and in this world. May it be so. Let's stand.